0: Welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today, I'm speaking with Mariam Monalisa Lisa Gharavi, who is an artist, writer, and theorist. Mona Lisa did an MFA in film and video and a PhD in comparative literature and film and visual studies at Harvard University and held a postdoctoral Fulbright and visiting professorship. She has been a lecturer in history and literature at Harvard and at New York University and Northeastern University. She has written several books and founded the Oil Research Group as a one-woman artist collective that explores the relationship between oil and data. She lives and works in New York. I met Mona randomly in the back of a shared Uber ride from a vision science conference in Florida. We started talking, and I thought she was so cool to listen to, so I invited her on my podcast. And after a few months and several delays and cancellations, this conversation finally happened. We start this conversation with the story of her life so far, moving from Tehran to the U.S. at a young age and realizing at some point in her childhood that she was artistically gifted. I then ask her where her ideas come from, and she walks me through how she conceived her work that she calls Life of Muhammad. We then talk about her recurring explorations of the limits of knowledge. Does Mona Lisa ever feel misunderstood as an artist and as a person? Is there an undercurrent of depression or pessimism in her art? And does she feel that the world is ending? We then talk about serendipity in our lives, its relation to Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious and collective and intergenerational trauma. I bring up that her art frequently comments on politics, economy, and technology, all heavily male-dominated areas. Is the current state and movement in these spheres, influenced by a male ego, run Finally, I ask her about the role of religion and spirituality in her life. Um, okay. So the, the first question I have is something that I ask a lot of my guests just to get a better sense of, you know, the person that they are. And, um, so it's basically, I'm just trying to get a little bit of an idea of your background, not so much like your professional history, because that can be found like online and things like that. But a little bit more about more of your like early life childhood upbringing, and then how did you get into you know doing the kind of like art literature poetry that you're doing today?
1: That's a really deep question. You know, it's a deep question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I I sometimes wonder about telling that story and how much of it is like your story and mm-hmm. then how much of it is intertwined with the story of others like your caretakers for example.
2: Mm-hmm
1: um i was born in iran in tehran Mm, i like to think of it as like being born in the city of 20 million in a concrete jungle
2: Mm -hmm. um
1: and anyway i mean that has a somewhat of a contiguous line for me with living in the east coast for example or a city like new york which for some reason gives me a lot of comfort despite Mm the the discomforts of urban living. I think I was around six or seven when my family immigrated to the United States, and I would say that that event, the event of immigration itself, is something that I'm still untangling. Mm-hmm. One because it set up such a different pathway. Then were I to be the kind of person that was raised in the same country and culture and family and all of that, uh, and, and wasn't. And we also didn't necessarily stay in one place um, due to the circumstances of my upbringing and my father's obtaining of education and professional pursuits um, we were moved a lot Mm -hmm. so it was that one move um, like the move and then the subsequent smaller moves to the point that I think I once counted it and it was 15 moves by the time I was 13 so quite quite unpredictable and in some ways like stable and in other ways vastly unstable uh kind of environment for i think a young a young mind a young mm-hmm. person in like i said in ways that i'm constantly untangling uh i remember the very first time that i think i wrote something or created an artwork And maybe this sounds juvenile, but I was literally a juvenile
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: for consumption by an audience. And it was when I was seven at Fernbank Elementary in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Georgia. And there's a famous astronomy center there, too. So imagine coming from, you know, Iran, you don't speak English uh, and then quickly you do speak English because you're so young and then you know, this giant astronomy center and, and a very interesting kind of environment. I really loved that elementary school, but I overheard my teacher saying, there's a contest and we should get the kids to submit to this contest." contest. I think it was like, you had to write a poem about friendship, <laughs> something like that. And so I just remember like sitting at my desk and doing that and then submitting it and winning. And then oh, the wow. next time- the same thing happened and it was like draw something and i remember this because it was such a was it the 90s yeah it was such a moment and it was like you remember dare like say no to drugs kind of things yeah. so it was like how do we get the kid we have to set up a contest to get the kids to draw something against drugs and i mean who how did i know what drugs were? i don't think i knew what drugs were you know and uh so i made a i made a drawing And that ended up winning. And I think it won me some money too. Like it was some kind of, I'm not kidding you. It was like some government issued bond that I've never actually, you know, liquidated. So somewhere Mm -hmm. in Atlanta, Georgia is like some kind of government bond issued to me for this drawing. But I think that was like the first time where I was like, oh, I get it. I'm not just making something in... My own small container, but Mm. other people will see it and it will no longer just be mine. I I think that was the first experience of that. And Mm. later, maybe I was 10, uh, we moved to the Caribbean for several years. And so a vastly different cultural environment, uh, especially given that my family was very markedly Muslim. So we lived in the Caribbean as these foreigners. Um, So not white, not black and not Indian, because Mm. those were like the three dominant,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, you know, ethnicities. And that was an interesting experience on its own. But I remember meeting a girl, one of my peers who had a little book with her, and she was just sort of a happy loner and she would walk around with this book, just writing down notebook, writing down poems to herself. And she took it very seriously. She was like, I, these are serious. This is serious work for me. And again, mm-hmm. we were like all of 10 years old and I really admired that. And I had friends at school also who drew better than me. I remember like feeling a little bit comparative at that time. Cause mm-hmm. I had a friend at school, this Russian immigrant And her trees were really beautiful. So I was like, I wish I could draw my palm trees as beautifully as hers. And then this other girl's, you know, believed in herself enough to create that, that, you know, basically book of her own poems at age 10 and and on and on and on. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think it came like that. I don't, I don't know that, uh. I, I certainly didn't feel any encouragement, at least. Oh, that, that's your kitten. So yeah. sweet. I didn't so know sweet. she was in the room.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So sometimes they know. Mm. Sometimes they can sense the mm-hmm. sense you having a conversation and maybe want to get in on the action. Yeah.
2: Um.
1: Yeah, I think it was just... Maybe writing feels like something that is DNA-born, mm. if that makes any sense. And mm. my decision to be an artist... And to formalize myself as an artist, I would consider that an, an, an a decision. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas I don't know that writing in particular has ever been just a decision, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, it feels mm-hmm. like the thing I kind of almost take for granted because it it just sort of comes. Uh, I've had some people be very encouraging to me over the years and and less so. My experience of the American educational system could probably... Be its own volume on a shelf very very sometimes very traumatizing experience of u.s education and then sometimes especially in high school where i had teachers who were very encouraging and took my writing and took my work very seriously uh, it went in the other direction but i definitely remember more than one instance and they were often white middle-aged middle-class kind of teacher profiles in all sorts of, you know, environments and states and schools that I grew up in that really cast doubt on what I was doing. Mm. Uh, My first experience of detention was in that same school and that I mentioned before in elementary school. And it was because I finished an assignment earlier than the other students And because I wasn't following directions and I finished an assignment early, Mm. they put me in detention. Like, my parents had to come in. And this was really traumatizing. I think, like, Mm. you know, if you're someone who wants to do the right thing, you don't want to stand out any more than you are already standing out. Mm. You are shuffled between lots of different... I remember I went to English as a second language school and I had to take a bus to do that. And so to be punished for that was really, like, a real Mm. injury Uh, I felt really ashamed Hmm. and later I remember teachers casting doubt on whether I had actually completed an assignment like we read Huckleberry Finn and I had to write an essay on Huck Finn and the teacher forced me to stay after school and said you know I know this isn't your work I know that this is borrowed from cliff notes and I thought like I legitimately remember saying what are cliff notes I I didn't know what she was talking about I Hmm. You know, and that those, I haven't thought about them in a long time, but those injuries in the educational system Mm. somehow didn't completely crush me, which is, which is good. It's good Mm. to know that, you know, there's still these sparks or or dregs of of some kind of artistic vision,
2: Mm.
1: some kind of um, wanting to communicate. I remember... I think it was on a podcast listening to this artist in New York define what it is to be an entertainer. And they said that to entertain the etymology of entertain is to deliver the information at the correct time. Hmm. And I really love that. And I think in some ways it applies to art as well. Like how do you communicate the information at the right time? How do you deliver the information? And I think that impulse has always been very strong, but I have to say it's come at, it's been quite costly
2: mm.
1: in terms of these experiences of US education um throughout the years and also not necessarily having a certain encouragement at home I think it was just like
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know my my parents were often working very hard to try to have anything like the same level or lifestyle that they might have enjoyed in Mm -hmm. Iran and as immigrants, uh, that was certainly not a given. And so I don't think, you know, checking in like, Hey, how's it going?
2: How,
1: how's, how's your work going? I don't think that was in any way at Mm -hmm. all a part of their psyche. Uh mm. I I always just sort of was very education or I was very intellectually motivated.
2: <laughs> um
1: and so I guess that takes us to around maybe 16, 17 when I took the idea of college very seriously. I wanted to just be done with high school. I was so over it. And I got in. I got into schools and ultimately decided to go to California to go to Berkeley. Um my parents <laughs> were were not really too pleased with that., um, they thought it was too far away. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to stay closer. I think I went farther away than anyone in my graduating class. And eventually, uh, due to some of our differences and, you know, dissonance, mm. um, I ended up paying for school. I ended up uh, emancipating myself. I went through a court process to financially, Emancipate myself so that I could take out some loans and pay out of student out of out of state student fees. Mm. That was a big deal to me at the time. I didn't know anyone else going through that. You know, um, I was very excited to be at a school like Berkeley, where, as one of my black classmates said, he felt like a pixel on a computer screen. Um, and I think I don't want to take away from his experience, but I certainly. Had moments of feeling that way. It's like forty thousand people all stuffed in this space together, and I was working a lot. I was mm-hmm. really excited by by the level of education I was getting there. A lot of a lot of it actually taught by graduate students, so you can see the the fraying of academia already in these early two thousands when I was in college. But really smart graduate students and and professors, and didn't really have any. I didn't have an ambition to go to graduate school at all. It mm. never crossed my mind. I can genuinely say that. I I think I was just sort of following a thread, following Ariadne's thread. And I worked under uh, a professor. Her name is Linda Williams. She's, um, I, I think, a leading light in film studies. Uh, she's someone who's, whose work was up to then pretty important um, in surrealism and looking at cinema and sex. Um, she, she wrote a book, a pretty seminal book on pornography. And she told me in her office, like, Hey, I think this thesis sample you've, you're writing, this is going to be this, this, this is a good writing sample for graduate school. And that was the first time I think I had ever come to this idea that, Oh, I might just continue going, continue developing this, uh, this intellectual fount. And, and so I did, uh, I Mm. worked for a year after college, I worked in the film industry, uh, which solidified my desire to never do that again. I mean, it Mm. wasn't just the film industry. It was like a kind of television and film industry, which is, which is profoundly, um, based on political, um, the political will of the country because it's Mm -hmm. based on grants and funding from the U S government. It was a really dark time. It was after nine 11. So very conservative vision. Um, I really didn't want to work in television and that industry ever again. And I decided to just go for it, uh, and took Linda's advice and submitted some applications and, um, yeah, ended up in graduate school
0: yeah you know, um, something that I felt even before, even the time that we were in the back of the Uber talking, is um, and I'm feeling it again, is I feel like it's very enriching for me to just be sitting here listening to you, and as you were talking, I was trying to figure out why that is the case, and I have had this experience a couple of times with some other people in my life, and I think it always happens when it feels like you're being very, like, real when you're, like, sharing. And I think a a lot of the times when I'm having a conversation, there are so many layers that have accumulated where a person is, like, doing something, but I'm not really... Yeah, so I feel like it's, like, kind of a privilege to be listening to someone speaking from, like, a very authentic and vulnerable place. Um. And also just being very real you have some kind of an exhibit coming up about that's called the life of Muhammad, and it's about uh, I don't know if it's coming up or it's already happening um, and I was just like looking through some of your art and things like that and one question that I had was how do you get your ideas like is there a process to getting your ideas or do they just like somehow just are like floating and it's like some kind of a, like a random unstructured thing. It just like happens. You just have like little blips of inspiration or like, yeah.
1: That's such a profound question and such mm-hmm. an elemental one too, because I don't know that I I ever really stopped to think about like, where does this come from? In yeah. the case of that work, so that was a pre-pandemic Mm-hmm project and it was 2019 and I had been sitting with this idea for Mm -hmm. a really long time uh it was going to be a film actually Mm -hmm. It was going to be a film video and then oh so I guess it was not
0: this September because I just went on a website and it said September so I thought it's this September but it was in the past right right yeah yeah. Um,
1: well I can tell you what's coming up this September but I I remember that that Mm -hmm. time in my life uh let's see I had just moved I'd only been in New York for about nine months. I'd moved to New York nine months prior. Um, the gallery or the the art space is called recess and you know, they have six artists in residence a year. And so mm-hmm. you get this chunk of time where it's just you and you have this space and good luck, you know, do something <laughs> here, yeah. activate this space somehow. And there's a really strong public component which in my original idea for Life of Muhammad was not necessarily the case. It was like, here's the work, it's gonna exist without me. But then in this new environment, I had to be in the space, work I actually had to clock in and out. Uh, I think I was the first artist where they started doing that with where, you know, you have to be there 20, 30 hours a week. And I had a I had a, I had two jobs at the time in 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 academia. And How did that idea come about? Well, you know, in 2001, after the attacks on the Twin Towers and this fomenting of what I think has always latently been in American culture, but fomenting of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim or even perceived to be Muslim attacks, there was a rounding up of about 5,000 men and boys Mm -hmm. with Muslim names. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Muhammad is, of course, the most popular name in the world. It Mm. also happens to be the name of the prophet of Islam and all of its derivations too, Hamid, Hamid, etc. Uh, In my own personal life, I had been affected by this. Uh, Someone I loved very much in my life, a man that I loved in my life had been also rounded up in this,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in this way, partly due to his name, partly due to his political involvement and activity uh, in, in righteous causes. And so I started thinking about that a little bit more deeply. What would it mean uh, to have men and boys all with the same name, mm. but somehow living a singular life? And that idea actually came to me, to go back to your question, where do ideas come from? Way, way back in high school, I went to high school in the D.C. area. I read a Washington Post narrative piece called The Life of John Smith. I'm sure you can still find it. Mm. And in fact, I I think I put a copy in, in the gallery. But The Life of John Smith united seven men and boys in this linear timeline from very, very young to Mm. nursing home as though they were one person. Mm. And this idea of crystallizing a life of possibility and not foreclosing any one ending. So here's John Smith at five. Here he is in his dorm room. Here he is working as an adult. Here he is at a nursing home and so on sat with me. And I think that just kind of latently sat there. And then, you know, this political, socio-historical, historiographic, whatever you want to call it, major event happened. And it's somehow, you know, it doesn't, it didn't happen in a, in a, hist- in a merely historical way. There's always the personal tactile way it touches your own life And so I thought, what would happen if there were, Mm. there was, you know, I gave myself a rule. They had to be Mohammeds in the United States. And by the time this work was accepted and funded, they had to be Mohammeds in New York. It's shocking how many Mohammeds there are in New York. Uh, And so I started doing casting calls, essentially auditioning men and boys named Mohammed, not for a political (laughs) roundup, not for um, any kind of Mm. religious understanding of the name necessarily, but rather just a, a curiosity to follow these lives and consider what would it be like. The picture of the Muhammad in my call, the young boy who is sort of the face of the project is my nephew, my first nephew, Muhammad. And my father also happens to be named Muhammad. He's also in the project Muhammad Ali is in the project. Uh, in fact, one of the audio playing in the gallery when a visitor walks in is the United States versus Cassius Clay, one of the, 19, the 1970s mm-hmm. Supreme Court case where um, Ali's passport is taken from him. And he's essentially prosecuted as a persona non grata. Uh, really fascinating audio, if you can get a hold of it. I'm sure it's online somewhere. And so... I started interacting with all these Muhammads. A couple of things came out of that. Uh I put together a book called the Muhammad Wikipedia Book, where I picked fifty people out of Wikipedia and um a wonderful uh a wonder a wonderful artist in my life, Simran, uh handmade that book for me before she left the US for India. But we had like handmade limited editions of the Muhammad Wikipedia book where you could sort of look through and look at this idea of, I mean, if, if there is an idea behind that part in particular, it's that the West only really knows the criminals
2: of Mm. Islamic
1: cultures, right? It prides itself on, you know, the surveillance, the capture, the vanquishing, Mm. all of its victory over Islamic cultures, a great irony, given the humiliation that just happened with the United States extracting itself from Afghanistan. I can't think of anything that was a bigger L in the past year. And there's many L's to take, but what losers um, to to be, you know, occupying Afghanistan for as long as they are and then essentially uh leaving the way they did. So the criminal the criminals are really what are known rather than what I know of Islamic cultures and peoples, which is its great, their great variegation, their absolutely, you know, radical differences—artists, um, poets, sports figures, politicians—and you know, so it's this really narrow, mm-hmm. limiting. I would extend this to all, you know, quote, ethnic non-Westerners, but particularly given the, the great enemy. Uh, of the past twenty-two years or so, um, so that was that was part of it. It was a, uh, I think, an attempt at decentering what are often seen as very two-dimensional yeah. figures and people and histories. And um, I was proud of some of the events that happened in that space. They're harder to capture. Um, and one of them was a Muhammad Jam night.
2: So mm-hmm.
1: these musicians that didn't know each other, but were named Muhammad, but, you know, came together and we had a jam night. Uh, hopefully I'll <laughs> upload some of those, including my, you know, they invited me on the mic, which was interesting, but maybe I'll upload that sometime soon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that was really nice uh, and, and you know, kind of different, I think, than other yeah. events that I've maybe put together um, the another event that I was really proud of is uh, a collaboration with League of Kitchens, which is an immigrant, all immigrant kitchen, and out of Queens, and it's this project to get the aunties and the mothers and the grandmas of the community who are really business owners. They, you know, cater. They do classes. I think mm-hmm. we had Uzbekistan, Bangladesh, and Iraq were the represented countries, and these. Women came, they presented their work, presented who they are. I think one of them was a doctor in Uzbekistan before she emigrated here and talked about their lives, talked about their relationship to cooking. Uh, I myself am vegan. And so I requested, Mm -hmm. you know, a vegan or vegetarian night. And that was really uh, different, especially since my project was all about men and boys, Mm -hmm. but to bring in the women um, aligned with some of the cultures that the work touched. Mm-hmm. And finally, the very first event was on September the 11th, 2019. And I invited oh, I see. Mohammeds in the community in New York City. Sometimes I solicited them by literally going to different masajids, to different mosques and actually giving out flyers. Sometimes, you know, it's, uh, I think Islamic Center of New York, uh, NYU led by Imam Khalid Latif, put out a call on his Instagram. Like, I basically left no stone unturned to bring men men named Muhammad into the space. Mm. And I just invited them to talk about their lives. And interestingly enough, even though I never necessarily prompted mm-hmm. 9-11 as a conversation topic, I think it was the first time that they had been invited to just speak about their own experience. And these are, yeah. you know very different and and sometimes really heart-rending experiences of loss of jobs loss of income um physical attack actually Hmm. to just you know being in the fray and watching that event unfold with everyone else but i think it had been the first time that they were in a space together and like they would say, like that other Muhammad said, like you just said, Muhammad. So it, it also created a very refractory experience for all of the non-Muhamads in the space. We were the minority and they were the majority. It was, it was, I would never do something like that again. It was very much to the time and place and the vision that I was invited to bring to the space and the collaboration I had with some of the people at recess, including Anne Duplan, the curator. And I think I'm an artist who's against site specificity. Uh, I borrow that from the artist Ab, uh, Abed abdus who has a, an essay against site specificity. Uh, there's some I'm troubled by some of the assumptions about that. And in this case... There were some aspects of site specificity, meaning New York City, but they came after. In other words, the vision, the artistic vision that I wanted to enact could have happened elsewhere. I wonder Mm. what it would have looked like, say, in Atlanta, Georgia, in Berkeley, California, in Cleveland, Ohio. But it wasn't. It was in New York City.
2: Mm.
1: That profoundly opened up certain options and created opportunities that I only would have been able to have in New York City. Mm. and um yeah i it's it's one of it it actually became my first up to now my first solo exhibition in new york because there was a sort of like final you know Mm -hmm. uh i don't want to say product but after this process of almost three months of work in the space there was an invitation for people to enter the space and be activated by it i'm also really proud of a collaboration with a group of young people at recess called assembly. They are, it's a court alternative program. So in, in, in lieu of incarceration of young people that have been, you know, court mandated recess offers an apprenticeship program where they can work with artists paid. And I was really excited. I had a, my assistant saint and who truly was a saint, uh, also many members of assembly that helped screen print and create help co-create t-shirts that had to do with some aspect of the muhammad vision including blowing up muhammad ali's signature for example and other things and so we were able to kind of create these unique products i mean i hate to use that word but you know they were addition they were you know, for people could buy them, they were for purchase, some of them not, some of them I took home with me. Um, But it was an interesting, a very unique uh, way to unite process and product uh, that stands alone from um, some of the other things I've done. I quite enjoyed it.
0: So I don't know which piece of art this is, it might be a little bit of a video, but it's like a man and a woman, and their head is like wrapped in like sheets. And I don't know anything else about this, but I just saw like one frame. And I realized that there was like a mixture of intense feelings that I felt immediately. And I could not name a single one of them. And but that image itself had like this very So you have to realize that you're talking to some guy from STEM. We have had like a little bit of back and forth about this. And uh, so for me, my, my work is mostly to think in very explicit terms and try to communicate it very explicitly. When I do science or whatever, it has to be reproducible. It has to be falsifiable. I have to be so detailed that a different person knows exactly what I'm talking about, the exact numbers, and then they should be able to take my exact perspective so I have to really like crystallize everything and so when I see something like that and I just get this feeling a lot of questions come to my mind one is this is maybe not such a precise thing the next person could feel a different mixture of feelings and the other thing is that there's something new for me to see something which communicates a feeling but it does not explicitly say this is the idea in my head this is what you're supposed to feel and so I'm like very intrigued by that and so I'm basically trying to like beat around the bush but I guess my question is a lot of the times when you're making a piece of art are you concerned about communicating the exact ideas that you have in your head to the person who's experiencing the art? Or a lot of the times, are you just like, I'm just going to give you a feeling?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, dimension of it. I think, well, yeah, I'm trying to think how does this sit with deliver the information at the right time.
0: I should also just add real quickly, a couple of things that I have seen of yours. They're like video projects and things like that. I feel like I can't exactly tell what the idea is but I get a mixture of like almost articulatable feelings that I'm getting but like you know like I am definitely getting like a lot of feelings and I I I can try to like word them there's something anti-authoritarian about it something like very like challenging and questioning um but it's not always like very literal so when I saw that I was like uh my mind seems to be struggling a little bit to to grasp this very tangibly. So that's where my question is coming from. Yeah.
1: It's interesting to put this, uh, alongside what you said about STEM and the idea that, you know, you get somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, defamiliarizing the familiar is bound to bring up some emotive feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one thing for sure. I think if there's anything that unites what I do, it's on and around the question of the limits of knowledge. Uh, Gaining knowledge, uh, feeling an intellectual insatiability, being naturally very curious, all of those things may be true. But I'm always thinking about the asymptotic limit of of knowledge as such. uh I think the great religious traditions have also thought of this. Uh, in fact, one of the works in the recess space, one of the works connected to life of Muhammad, was a wall decal in which I repeated in Arabic. Um, knowers of the seen and the unseen, knowers of the seen and the unseen 10 times. To- no, excuse me, knower, the singular 10 times because that attribution of God as the knower of the seen and the unseen appears exactly 10 times in the Quran. And mm-hmm. you could go to Buddhist c- conceptual, conceptualizations of knowledge, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Jewish mystic on and on and on and there's this conception of god as the all-knowing mm. and if so so if there is a divine or a creator that is quote all-knowing sees the seen and the unseen the visible and the invisible what does that say about us what are we and that is definitely an impetus for the 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 limits of knowledge that i care so much about less than like i know in art school i remember a professor chastising me for there's not like a A traceable icon like he's like why can't i see this thing all throughout your work as though Mm. you know i I don't know i'm not a i don't know what kind of artist i was supposed to be according to this person but it was like wanting it to be easy like just Mm. repeat (laughs) your repeat this signature thing always so i know it's yours and it's interesting what the what that says about the professionalization of art what that says about the product and commodification of art Mm. Uh, and i'm deathly uninterested in that uh yeah but in terms of the work that you're talking about it's it's a longer work it's 12 minutes film video called love script Mm. and in it i had a woman and a man recreate six scenes from cinema six love scenes from cinema in which there is a kiss and that kiss happens through medical masks, uh, veils, and other kinds of screens. So there's this kind of blockage to the act. And I should say that even though like they're wearing medical masks in some of the scenes, uh, this happened in 2017. So preceding, you know, obviously the COVID pandemic. Um, yeah, I, I think what is it that you feel or what is it that is supposed to be contained here I mean, I would hope not any one thing, you know, I think to expect to elicit one kind of response would be incredibly narrow, narrow narrow-minded of an artist to do. Um, One thing that I do think might separate art from, say, science, and this is not my opinion or fact, this is just something I've heard and I think makes a lot of sense, is that in science, you have a hypothesis and you set out to prove it. And in artistic work, you often are working with the content as it is and then develop a hypothesis about it. And I I would say what happens if, I, I think maybe both of those things can also be true. Sometimes, and I've done a, a lecture on this, and I'm sure the video is out there somewhere on YouTube or something uh, called Theory of Betrayal, in which I delineate the task of the artist as needing to be betrayed by her work somehow. That yeah. the artwork is not really finished until then. I think then. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. This idea that, yeah. let's say I have an idea a vision for art love script. You know, mm-hmm. I, I this was a work that I had access to cin- a cinematographer, uh, you know, several people helping me on camera, everything before love script I shot myself. Um, all of these resources, actors, like good ones, um, audition processes, all of that, okay, well, what happens when you have the thing you, you got, like you, you think you think it's one thing you run the experiment, right? A repetition or restaging of iconic love scenes from cinema. Okay. So we did it and we did it as best as we could with the funds and the resources and the integrity that we had. Mm-hmm. Now what happens? Mm-hmm. And that I think does drive with whoever said this, that in art you do it. And then there's the hypothesis. In my case, and I certainly don't wish to kind of elevate myself here in any way. I'm just being really honest and, and real. I and I think this is also part of having made that work within a within an art school framing at the time. Um, I did very much have a hypothesis, uh, meaning that I was thinking about the role of the face in our society. Again, this is 2017, not 2020 some of these ideas should i should go back to them and see if they how they hold up now when i wear masks 75% of my time outside um still uh i wanted to ask the question of if in covering the face you elicit some kind of response in people what does it mean about the face then what do, what is this what does it mm. mean neuro- neurobiologically because we know that we have certain processes in our mind that uh you know pick up on the faces of others like we've evolved that way what does it mean sociologically uh so I was reading Deleuze and Guattari on the quote terror of the face which Deleuze says it it is terrorful because it cannot be represented it can only be repeated when you have a face covered in public for example um there's something terrifying about it, is is his point. Um, so yeah. and on and on and all of the isms and all of the I, all of the things behind just one thing, just what happens if the face is not readily available to scan
0: yeah. by a
1: human or by a machine like you a facial recognition system. Of, you know
0: Daft Punk. Yeah, they had they wear these visors and whatever they have to say scrolls past. The visors—it's like these electronic music artists, and I don't know—they just maintain this public persona where nobody has seen their faces. But they they go to like shows and whatever, and they wear this visor, and whatever they have to say, I don't know how they're doing it. But the words like scroll past their visors. That that's how you know what they're saying. And I don't know. Yeah, I remember
1: thinking about the celebrity use of covered faces, and this isn't recent, like with Mm -hmm. Kanye West. This is like way back, like. I remember seeing images of Michael Jackson
2: mm. uh,
1: wrapping veils around his and his children's faces at airports, and it's a, it's a little different, right? Because in that instance, you know who it is, but their mm. face is occluded from you. Mm. So this this idea of divulging information or withholding information, I think,
2: mm-hmm. is
1: really at the heart of some of the things I think about in the limits of knowledge in this particular, you know, body of work um for example actually speaking of stem one of the works i think the longest thing i've ever made so far it's a little over 50 minutes was a biographical profile of a woman mm. um an M- a former mit graduate student uh who has bell's palsy and woke up one day and half of her i think the film the film is called eve's face half of her face facial muscles degenerated and were no longer active and she was like drinking coffee and coffee would spill out the other side. And, you know, she's just sort of like sitting on her bed with her boyfriend going like, what's happening to me? And, and, uh, we met in a really interesting way. I, I answered the call for a ride share to a meditation retreat and she, I lived in Cambridge at the time and so did Eve. And when I was driving us, um, I could only see a profile of her face. So I could see the quote, good side, meaning the 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 side that was not affected by palsy. And she's telling me her life story on this three-hour drive. And I thought, like, that was the germination of like, wait a minute, this is strange. I Here I am, I'm making a body of work on the face. And I just happened to meet this woman who is no longer in full control of hers. And she's a young woman. She's beautiful. She you know this this just happened to her and that ended up being you know an additional work alongside love script but you know it was a uh, serendipitous but also you know when you know that feeling when you're you're obsessed by an idea mm. or you know what you're kind of looking for and it and just it keeps showing on up, showing up. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. if i said yellow car and you went yeah. outside and all of a sudden you've never seen more yellow cars yeah, yeah, but yeah. in this case it was a a beautiful serendipity. And and I really give so much credit to Eve for being such a willing participant in the video installation I ended up creating, which actually I don't think I could ever recreate. It was a very Mm -hmm. narrow room. And Mm -hmm. as a viewer, you're almost in, you, you're in, you go in this room on your left and your right are different angles of Eve's face as she's talking about her face. It's like the face is telling on itself
2: Mm -hmm. and you're
1: wedged between it. And, the average time a viewer spends on a video work in fine art spaces is roughly six seconds. And her, her telling mm. of her face was so compelling mm. that I, you know, I had a clicker and I had assistance and also reports from people that a 52 minute film, people had ended up staying upwards of 26 minutes in this narrow space. Uh, and I think it's due to what a compelling Telling what a compelling autobiography she did of herself. And you're, you're looking at the thing that is no longer supposed to be functioning, telling itself on itself. There's something in continental philosophy that Mm. I also grapple with where, you know, when you turn the doorknob, you don't really, the doorknob is invisible and you just go about your day. You turn the door and open it and move on. You only notice it when it's no longer working. Mm. When the, that it's unlatched or something Hmm. it's locked or whatever it's broken. The handle's broken. And I I certainly don't wish to say, I, I certainly don't wish to have an ableist argument about this person, but I think her, her willingness and her incredible consciousness that she is both her body and not her body. She is both her face and not her face at all. And her telling of it, I think, brought people in and maybe some of the ways that you articulated about an emotional response hmm. to what's happening, even though she's sitting there dispassionately giving yeah. an autobiography of her face.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm very intrigued by the way that your mind works. Like there's something very... So, you know, when I, when I meet a person, I think this happens quite naturally. I meet a person, I'm trying to get to know them my mind is trying to simulate their mind and for some people it's incredibly difficult for me i'm like wow all of this is just unanticipated unexpected unpredictable whoa and i'm getting that feeling a lot so i think yeah it's like i'm like wow that's why a lot of this question like where are your ideas come from and whatever um i have a bit of a personal question and you can skip this one if you want both uh, both as an artist and as a person, do you ever feel like your feelings or your perspective are misunderstood?
1: Yeah, I think in in art, when I've had the advantage to hear back what people think about something, whether that's in what's called a crit, like a presentation or a critique, or people write you or something like that, then sometimes the misunderstanding can be productive.
2: Mm.
1: And I don't know that I've ever been totally angered by a Mm. misunderstanding, although never say never. I've never taken it personally. Again, I prefer to be betrayed by the work, meaning Mm -hmm. what happens when it exists in the world without me. So I do see that part of it, that completion as a part of the artistic process. I sh- I think in my personal life, it's been much more painful to be misunderstood, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: painful to be misunderstood. I think it's painful because we, or I could use the word I, I like to think of myself as um, transparent with the people I love and upfront And to feel like your transparency or your, let's say, your vision of radical honesty isn't engaged with or isn't taken in the way you meant it can certainly be painful. Um, I don't know that that necessarily gets easier, but maybe I'm becoming a lot less bothered. I know I am. I'm a lot less attached to it and... um, you know a lot more willing to bless and release
0: yeah and do you feel like you ever like people ever find you like too complex to understand
1: oh i've definitely gotten that kind of feedback and i think sometimes it's in the past it's been hurtful because you know i don't know if you have this experience but some children are like told that they're excessive mm-hmm. or they talk too much, they think too much, they're too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very um damaging idea. Mm. Uh it's a damaging practice for children. And then what, you like spend your life hiding or you spent your life effacing something. And as an adult, I'm trying to think where that's been true for me. If I'm being honest, I think it comes much more from men. Mm. And not even necessarily in a romantic context, but I don't know. Is that true? A lot of my, I mean, I I collaborate with all kinds of people, but yeah, I would say so. I would say that, um, I would say that's happened, but I've, I've, I'm much less likely these days to let it stand in my way.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Nice.
0: Um, do you feel like there's an undercurrent of depression or pessimism or hopelessness in the way that you portray like the world through art?
1: I hope not. I mean, I always think on um, Antonin Gramsci's famous dictum that optimism of the will, pessimism of the mind. Do I have that right? You're going to have to Google and fact check me if I have it right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a certain degree of optimism is necessary to do the kind of work you want to carry out in the world on top of, you know, just being a person who's living,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I do think I I want to say that I feel uncompromising in my vision. Mm-hmm. In other words, if there's anything radical, I I would like to hope that it's my artistic vision that's radical. Mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I want to be able to look at things unflinchingly.
2: Yeah,
1: and that might. Maybe that comes across or has a sort of feeling tone Mm -hmm. that is negating, but, you know, I think of it more as uncompromising and I'm not really quite all there yet. I mean, I, I've said this before, I really admire Pasolini,
2: Mm.
1: the late Italian film director, poet, novelist, teacher, journalist, among others. And I think he was also seen, I'm not comparing myself to Pasolini, but he's someone that I um, think of a lot in terms of being able to do all of the things he did under a fascist Italian regime and be an open homosexual. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly don't agree with all of his ideas, but uh, he lived a very kind of stringent, um, critical Catholicism But what I do really appreciate was his anti-consumerism and for an Italy at that time that was really looking to capital accumulation Mm -hmm. for its breathing through fascism. Uh, In Portuguese, it's called desabafá, like moments of respiration amidst fascism. Uh, I'm sure like a figure like Pasolini who was so uncompromising in his objection to the commodification of everyday life uh, came across as quite negating. And I I always think like how the world that we have is so much more complex. It's so, it has such a different reach globally. Mm-hmm. It's so much more interconnected and there's such a possibility. Well, what does it mean to be unflinching or uncompromising in that world? Mm-hmm. Uh is, I I often think I'm not doing enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because I feel like when I look at your work, it's not easy. And uh, like it's this uh, some kind of like a dark tonality and sometimes I'm like, man, yeah, shit is fucked. <laughs> so I'm trying to understand if there's like a bottom line where you're like, nah, it's going to get better, you know? Um You know, according to the Hindu mythology or cosmology, this is supposed to be the last of the four aeons of the universe, the last and the most corrupt, and then the world ends, and it starts again. Um, And I've been hearing and sort of uh, talking a lot about apocalypse, with people, especially with the climate change, and things are just getting so exponential. Like the human impact on the planet, no matter how fucked up shit we did, it was not at this scale. But everything is just getting like faster and faster and faster. And our impact is getting like exponential. So I don't know even if you realize, oh man, shit is fucked, if you're gonna have enough time to like put the brakes on. I'm sure other generations have felt it too, for other reasons. Oh, the world is ending, we're ending the world. So maybe we're not the first generation. We're just feeling it for different reasons. I can't really make up my mind. But this question keeps coming up in my head. Do you you feel like the world is ending?
1: Well, this question that you asked before that about, are we the first generation to feel it?
2: Yeah.
1: I'm going to go ahead and make the statement that, you know, I don't want to sort of say millennials are so special. Yeah, we're special (laughs) because... We've lived through four recessions in our working lives and we can't, I don't, I can't talk about Gen Z because Gen Z is just entering its working years. It's the years in a labor market, but we have data on us, you know, Mm. we're very self-conscious of who we are as wage slaves, as workers in the world. And also the ease of with which you get commodities, the ease the relative ease, let's say, right? Um, We can talk about the end of fossil fuels and also also Amazon has never done better. Mm. You know, where do all the Amazon boxes go, right? Mm. Um, I think many ideas are ending. I think it's the death knell of many ideas and that we're living through a very painful and regressive transition And response to the end of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, Things, I don't like to sort of dwell on the word fascism and use it, you know, outside of a kind of historical understanding of it. But many things can be true at the same time. Uh, Things can feel really boring and monotonous and also very dystopic, Mm. you know. I'm just thinking, I don't know if you have this visual in your mind, but like, you know, those benches that they create and design so homeless people can't sleep or encamp in them. That's what I mean of like boring, Mm. dystopic, ugly, functionally insane,
2: Mm. and
1: also uh, a deterrent for human care.
2: Mm.
1: I think maybe the thing that made me feel this question of apocalypse, I don't think this is just me was 2020 just made things so clear. There was this, and and it, like, think back on that, like, where you were, you know, March 2020, right? Like, there was this feeling I had of productive and reproductive capacity. Like, suddenly things stopped. Suddenly the animals came out and nature is healing. Uh, Suddenly... You know, the gears of, like, oil prices were at a historic high. Um, the oil industry announced that it was going to crash, whatever that means. Um, and also, there was a resurgence of reproductive care. I don't just mean, you know, reproduction. I mean things like mutual aid. I mean neighborhood <laughs> neighborhood cooperatives. I mean... Uh, a sense of understanding that we're all in this human muck together. And I feel that the pendulum is swinging much the other way that the productivity and the expectation of cultures of productivity has, is higher and higher. And the capacity for us to understand our own reproductive care is lower and lower. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether you are like a a mother without maternal leave or care in the United States, whether you're, you know, a gig worker who doesn't have a stable place to use the bathroom, whether you're an Amazon worker whose muscular and tendon exertions are measured by the company and kept as part of your portfolio these the collapse of the collapse of a reproductive understanding of who we are as human societies is something that I feel is an apocalypse. Mm. And, and yet we've never been more productive as human beings. We've never, you know, what is it like unemployment is lower than it ever has been. And no one saw that coming. The fed can't explain it, et cetera, et cetera. So
2: Mm.
1: to say nothing of things like the collapse of societies where we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis in, in recorded history, Um, we don't even talk about that, right? We don't talk about the, the migrant journeys that have, uh, essentially created, a um, you know, unwritten massacres of people. So when taken that way, it can be very, very low. You can Mm -hmm. feel really depressed about it. And yet, you know, like I said, optimism, optimism of the will, um, to continue to defamiliarize these things that feel like the waters we're all swimming in and to make them unfamiliar to us and to make ourselves see them all over again, to be able to, I think we're living in a time of deep consciousness raising where people are, you know, more aware, right? These are not like ideas baked into some kind of academic understanding. My understanding of gender equity, for example, doesn't come from some kind of academic machine, it comes from lived experience um, and yeah, I don't know we're we're living through something that remains to be written, but why not us like why not be the ones to help write it? you know
0: mm-hmm. the serendipity thing i had a i had a I had a thought about that, yeah, um yeah, I mean, you know when you're thinking about idea, things pop up, but do you feel like you're life is more serendipitous than that? Like, do you feel like magical, synchronistic, coincidental, serendipitous things happen?
1: I have two responses to that question.
2: Hmm.
1: One is, I'm more and more interested in Jungian analysis, and I think Jung is really one of the uns... Well, he's not unsung, he's Jung.
2: Hmm. But...
1: For me, he has been unsung until recently, and I'm devouring a lot of, um, I guess, the psychoanalytic framework that descended from him. And serendipity Mm. is very much a part of that framework, and I wish I could articulate it in a way that sounds somewhat intelligible, but I'm learning about it even as I'm talking to you about it, that, you know... It isn't just magical thinking, right? Yeah. That there are he is he is known, quite known for coming up with the idea of a collective unconscious. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. if there's something implicit about our con you know, you have this kind of baseline. Mm-hmm. You're not a blank canvas necessarily, but as a child, mm-hmm. certain certain things are implicitly marked with, within you and you grow up and you may not have a lot of Access to that implicit memory, but you may, if you
2: mm-hmm,
1: trammel your thought process and and do consciousness raising work and therapy or what have you, and then you can integrate implicit and explicit memory. That's a process of integration. So that idea alone is interesting. And then you try to imagine mm-hmm. his vision of a collective unconscious. Oh, so yeah. in that sense, it makes so much sense that serendipity is not some kind of right. The the common understanding even my own sometimes of like, I can't believe this is happening, that it's yeah. not actually magic.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that's my first thought about it. Let me try to see if I remember my second. Yeah, do you have a response to that before I talk oh, about the yeah, second? Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I'm, uh, yeah, there's like a lot of thoughts. <laughs> you look like that's... you
1: have something to say and I really like <laughs> yeah. your papaya shirt, by the way. Oh, thank I know. thank
0: you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so the collective unconscious thing Um, So I encountered this idea, not through Jung, but through like a derivative thing. So there was a guy, he was a a professor of religious studies who took 70 something really high doses of LSD. And uh, he, he did it throughout his entire life. He did it like in sort of secret. Nobody knew about it at his work. But then he wrote a book called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And I read this book. And in this book was the first time I learned of the uh, concept of the collective unconscious, because he was saying that on like moderate doses of LSD, what happens is that you kind of sink deeper into your psyche and things that are underneath your psyche, under the visible layer starts coming up. But still it's still your personal psychology. And uh, what happens if you go deeper than that is you start experiencing the psychologies of people and things that are related to you. And if you go even deeper than that, you can have the perspective or experience of whole populations. Like you can relive the experience of an entire population that's undergoing genocide. Um, and so in order to make sense of these experiences, he used the framework of, I think Stanislav Grof, who was like this, psychedelics researcher also used this idea of transpersonal psychology and he was basically saying that on deep doses of psychedelics you break through into a more collective um, transpersonal um, layer of psychology in which collective trauma is contained. So at that point the trauma that you're experiencing is no longer your personal trauma because you're like fuck this never happened to me but it happened to some broader consciousness and now it's you've reached that you've broken through and you're experiencing the trauma of a whole population or something like that and that really challenges a lot of modern neuroscience because we think of like we first of all we don't yet know what consciousness is but if there is something we think of it as properties of individual brains and so to think that oh no there can be perspectives or consciousnesses at all different levels not just at the level of your body but at the level of whole collections of beings and then maybe a whole earth consciousness things like that are uh, I have sometimes felt in my life some wave of depression is coming up and I cannot figure out why I'm feeling this way and there's no link to anything and then a thought popped in my head is like well, in many ways, the whole planet is suffering. And if all our psychological, psychic energies are are interconnected in some kind of underground current and we don't really know, then it's constantly mixing. And if there's suffering going on elsewhere, it's not too surprising that at some point it can flow through me because I'm part of this and I have no idea why I'm feeling this way. And And, and, and I also had the idea that it is part of our duty to experience the trauma of the universe. Um, or yeah, I don't know if it's though duty is the right word, but it's just because we are off it, we are going to experience it. There's no way for us to be able to completely cut us off from the trauma of other people and thank God, because if that were the case, then, you know, you could just split the world into the haves and the have nots and it would work fine, but it constantly keeps leaking, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's because of this leaking, that's empathy. And so you cannot stop the suffering from entering if it's happening elsewhere. So in a way, the thought that I had was that let's be thankful for this. This is what keeps the universe going is because we feel each other's suffering. Um, and on the uh, on the note of like Jungian, I haven't read much of Jung, but what I understood was that one difference between like the way that he writes and the way that someone like Freud writes is a kind of dichotomy where I see that there's a kind of Western analytical, more male ego where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to analyze you. And, and then there's a different kind of psychology where I think it's a little bit more humble, where it, it does not come so much from a place of ego. And I don't know, I'm just kind of talking out of my ass here.
1: Yeah. To go backward from the very last thing you said, uh, one of the reasons I am so drawn to the Jungian psychoanalytic lineage is Some of the people that come from that, like Bowlby and Ainsworth, uh, whose names are maybe becoming more popularized given the popularization of attachment theory, Mm -hmm. have a lot to kind of offer. I I tend to think of attachment theory as one of the great gifts uh, of of Western science. Mm -hmm. I would honestly, without exaggeration, put it on par with penicillin. Mm. Uh, that's how deeply I am a proponent of it. And it Mm -hmm. goes exactly to what you said that in the Freudian framework, um, the idea in the 19th century Victorian European (laughs) circle that formed Mm. there was that if a child was brought in for analysis, then others were asked to leave the room. Like the mother wasn't there. It was about the, the child in the mind of the child and it isn't until some of the early arising of the attachment model and actually Bowlby and Ainsworth own biography Jung's biography uh, I I like to read these like Wikipedia biographies of these people because you can kind of see how the the relational fraying or the Mm. the displacement of relationality in their own early childhoods but that idea was bunk. It was like, well, actually, the relation between this child and his or her maternal caretaker, often maternal, not mm-hmm. only maternal, has a lot to do with who this child is becoming, right? I'm I'm really deeply simplifying it mm. um, for shorthand, but this was not a given at all. And so attachment theory, as I said, I think it's becoming a lot more popularized and I want to also caution this idea of it like being this label. I think another Western framework is like categorization, linearity, mm-hmm. labeling of everything. Like, oh, you're securely attached, therefore yeah. X, Y, Z, rather than actually these are references. These are yeah. scientific references that may offer mm. some some other insights. They are malleable. They are not meant to be linear. Going back to a collective unconscious, and again, I, I do really enjoy evidence-based work. Um, it makes a lot of sense what you say about some of the these controlled experiments with psychedelics, of course, and even outside of that, in the field of epigenetics. Uh, I recently mm-hmm. learned that the epigenetic framework is particular around the mother line. In other words the match epigenetics and whether or not certain markers of genes are turned on or off for say collectivized trauma, generational trauma, et cetera. Much of that is seen to come through a matrilineal line. Mm. And that's something that in my own personal life, uh, I've been, I've had the opportunity. I would like to say fortune, not misfortune, the real opportunity and the luxury of thought to be able to map out what my matrilineal line is like. Um, I know my mother. I know my grandmother. I was, my great grandmother was alive and I met her. I never met my great grandmother, but I know her name. Mm -hmm. And I have a little bit of an idea around what Mm the live, not as much as I'd like, not as much as my, you know, research can carry me yet. I have some idea of what it was like, what these women's lives were like. Mm. And not to sort of envelop everything in one big uh, truism, but if it's also true that your grandmother is in some way carrying you because she's carrying at what, five months, the fetus, the female fetus is also being Mm -hmm. born with all of her eggs, so your grandmother is carrying you, then... It would make a lot of sense given hormones, given all of the the many, many processes that are happening inside the physical and emotional, these things are not separate, the emotional physical body of these women, it would make sense that I am somewhat at least capable of being the beneficiary of their trauma or their triumph. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: that's something that I sit with all the time. The second part I was going to mention to your question about the question you brought up earlier about serendipity is, I don't know if this is related to what we're talking about, but um, I think what's been very dissatisfying for me as someone growing up in the culture, whatever culture you want to say, just growing up in this society is how much we're taught to centralize ourselves in our lives, mm-hmm. that we design our life, that we lead our life. And I want to question that. And I'm in the process of really deeply questioning that thesis. Uh, I know the work of many religions is to center not you, but to center God.
2: Yeah.
1: And whether or not, you know, you are the follower of a religion, whether or not you think of, some, of, of, of a divine creator, a creator, mother nature, the source,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or maybe none at all, or, mm-hmm. or the greater consciousness, or maybe none at all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There is something to be said for what I'm on now, which is not trying to lead my life, but instead follow my life. Yeah, And that that doesn't sit well with someone who's very controlling. I mean, I, I, I think of most of us, right? Like, I assume you're a millennial like me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, to be in control of your life and to exact a kind of discipline over your life and
2: mm-hmm.
1: et cetera, et cetera, that is part and parcel of the emotional life of millennials, I would argue. Because so much is out of control. The economy, the being worse off than any other generation before us. Are being worse being worse off than our parents. Unlike any other generational mobility before us, um, the the d- degradation of gender equity. I mean, the end of fossil fuels. I could keep going. Mm-hmm. So we are very controlling. I think in our own lives to exact a kind of discipline and control. And I'm all for that. I you know tried to wake up and failed to wake up at five a.m. today, or woke up and snoozed the clock. So like something as simple as you know, can you wake up the time that you want to wake up? Right. But I'm, I I think I mean in a much more expansive way, I've been reflexively asking myself this question of what would it look like if you followed your life mm. rather than led your life? What kind of acceptance would that require from you? And that question, I, I want to say that that's kind of a Jungian question also, Um Maybe not necessarily along the lines of serendipity or like I'm living mm. in magical thinking or I'm waiting for something to happen. Certainly not. Mm. Certainly not. Uh, if all of us have ego. All of us have to get out of bed in the morning and put our pant legs or our skirts on one leg at a time. No one's going to do that for us. Certainly there's the place of, of an autonomous ego at play. But I've been trying to challenge myself a little bit more in terms of Detachment from outcome, and mm-hmm. what would it look like uh, to be accepting of the contention that I am a follower and not a leader of my own life? Mm. It's a radical rethinking that I think I I have been used to, and uh, it's decentered. It's decentered myself from my life in a way that is often uncomfortable. And I think really necessary and not because, you know, not because I'm trying to be somewhat more selfless or I'm trying to do anything. It's, it's rather, um, it it, it actually, one of the ways that I've seen it play out is it invites a lot more personal responsibility. That's for sure. Mm. But also in other words, being very aware of what I can consume, what I can't control and being much more detached from what I cannot control.
0: Yeah. I sort of noticed that, um, a lot of your art, it feels like a commentary on the areas of like technology, war, industry, politics. And, what I was thinking about, these are all very male-dominated fields, like highly male-dominated fields. And do you feel like the energy that's contained in these fields and the things that are happening in industry, technology, politics, the whole whole thing has to do with it being so male-dominated? Or is that just a coincidental thing? I'm...
1: I'm feeling like i want to ask you what do you think oh, while I, I chew on it
0: i totally think that it has to do with it being <laughs> like so male dominated i think we keep revisiting a certain dichotomy we have named it in different ways before we have called it okay let's say Freudian versus jungian western versus eastern self versus i don't know eastern cultures there's more of a um a, a concern for like community rather than yourself like ego versus like not ego matter versus spirit and i think the okay so i don't know i think maybe i sent you a video where terence mckenna was talking about how the male ego has run amok and 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 it needs needs to be fucking like reeled back in it's like the world is like getting disbalanced too much to one side And I was thinking about this a little bit that I think it's all kind of connected and analogous. I feel like we live in a society where science and technology is getting too much. And so all of our capacities, we are capable of a lot of different things as humans. And thinking is one of them. But thinking is dominating, like the analytical thinking and trying to figure out solutions in the material world and believing that the material world is everything. So material technologies, material solutions, material problem, here's material solution. New material problem, two material solutions. Um, I think these are all kind of interrelated. And like the male ego is also something to do with that. Not entirely clear, but I feel like a lot of the... A lot of the issues that are happening particularly with how like technology is just going it doesn't like think about some broader spiritual consequences they're like we can make this and it will sell let's make it you know um Mm -hmm. there's something kind of like rash and something kind of egoistic something a little bit yeah i feel like the picture would be different if it wasn't so many like young guys you know
1: And I think we're going through such a trembling, fearful, paranoid era of maybe a waning influence of what we we might call, you know, a male era, Mm -hmm. a male epic. And I think that transition is maybe being played out in very difficult, chaotic, fearful ways right now. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a feeling I get when I wake up that there's a gender cold war and some might say it's not even that cold. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think your question about era, about, um, these themes makes, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) the short answer is yes. Um, I don't know that I've necessarily thought of it that explicitly, but more and more I am that. Uh, I'm, I'm writing a book actually right now on extractive economies. And the -hmm. way that I entered that project is through petroleum, Mm -hmm. through fossil fuels, um, or or any um, like fossil fuels for sure. And there's a finit finitude of fossil fuels. We know they're going to end, Mm -hmm. you know, but also things like mining resources and where who, who gets to have them, who, who benefits from them. Who has the right to extract them? And analogous to that is the world of data, which is Mm -hmm. seemingly infinite, which is like, you know, data and metadata, just the two of us talking. There's going to be, you know, a metadata of all of the information about the file in which you save this and then the way your audio takes off into the this, this stratospheric internet and so on. So seemingly it's infinite. And mm. uh, I also want to, I think, if I do my work correctly, which is, you know, to check your presumptions at the door,
2: mm-hmm. uh, I want to
1: also challenge those, those ideas about finitude and infinity. Mm-hmm. But the other extractive resource that I've been adding as a chapter uh, is Women women as an extractive resource. Um, Currently, the book is divided into chapters with Ds, uh, and I'm giving a lecture in Amsterdam about this in October on dirt, death, I'm sorry, let me rephrase it, dirt, debt, death, and data. And I realized that the book really needs to have a fifth chapter, and that's desire. And under the realm or the umbrella of desire, how women have been historically uh, as a class of people. There's no Holocaust to mark this. There's no, uh, you know, memorial for the witches at the stake, Uh, the female infanticide in so many cultures, including and up to the 21st century, um, the widespread degradation and humiliation of American women with the latest SCOTUS ruling, uh, this idea in the tech bro circles that all we really need is to just have a technocratic womb society, like as seen in the film, the matrix where you can just disembody the womb and that way we'll, you know, and of course how that sentence ends is never really completed. And then what? So we'll have, you know, wage slaves for capitalism. Like, what are we really talking about here? It's like a
0: brave new world.
1: Yeah. And it makes me ask the question of, what you really want is a female biological function without the female. What you yeah. really want is to talk about the life of a fetus without talking about the pregnant woman person carrying that fetus. What mm. you really want is to disembody an embodied person, which to me is the beginning of. I mean, that's the that's the that's the end result of commodification, mm. degradation, et cetera. It's um, also
0: about taking over control. It's like now we do this. We well, it's interesting this. you say that to, in yeah. the
1: context yeah. in the context of Jung, and I don't want to say mm. like you know Jung is this genius and came up with all of this, but in that universe of ideas,
2: mm.
1: one of the things I've encountered is that there is an or fear in the male that no matter what he can make or what he can do, he cannot make a baby, mm. and that fear or that dread of not make being able to create. Being able to give life in that way is a driving force for, you know, fill in the blanks. One yeah. book that I would say has really shifted my own understanding of this, and not in a magical thinking way, but with, you know, peer-reviewed sources and historical example is Adrienne Rich's book of Woman Born, Motherhood is Experience and Institution. I could not recommend it highly enough. Mm. Adrienne Rich is is an American poet who had three boys. She she had three children, I think in her 20s. Her husband was an academic. Her career and her ideas and her artistry were always secondary to his academic career. And um, she really writes about this from a very kind of, academic dispassionate point of view sometimes weaving in her own experience but ultimately this idea of motherhood affects everyone whether or not they have a child whether or not they have a womb and you know i wish i could sort of be a proponent of this book in an even bigger way but i really recommend it and this idea of a male epic or a male era as you've laid it out with um the industrial revolution uh which presumably was meant to make our lives easier right mm-hmm. i know i really my dishwasher is currently broken and i'm waiting for the technician to get its parts i'm washing every dish by hand and you know that has its own kind of psychic landscape where i can dream i can think i can mm-hmm. you know whatever but it's also really annoying and irritating and i just want the the effect of the industrial revolution back so that I can have a working dishwasher, right? So I'm saying all of this as I, I, you know, this is not a a sum total statement, but with the rising of the industrial revolution, um, and by the way, Rich is one of the few authors I've seen talk about the role of women in work outside of this halcyon idea we have that, you know, The men did the work and the women raised the babies. And she completely dismantles this idea using historiography to say that actually isn't true. Um, not even just for working class women, that women have been a profoundly important part of, of working life. Um, both in terms of reproductive and productive labor. But from that, Onward to these the rise of, of mass extractive economies not unlo- not limited to but including fossil fuels in the twentieth century with the founding of, of oil reserves and and then you brought in you know the tech tech industry, um, and I think the tech industry is uh, a very similar kind of industry to oil in the sense of, uh, well data scraping mm-hmm. I'm currently creating a work. Um, with another artist it's a it's a two-person series of works i'm creating with the artist sam levine who's expounding on this idea of scrapism or html as essentially being a scrapist technology that just like a vacuum sucks data and metadata and the work that we're making together on oil and uh oil bodies um oil dead oil wells um oil and gas products uh, and information is often using this tool of scraping. We're using web scraping to get it. But anyway, to, to, to go back to the, the, the macro topic that you introduced um, what do I think about it? I mean, I think all of us in many ways are inculcated into that masculinist ethos, Mm -hmm. which is, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you delineated a lot of them. I think we're open some more feminine ethos of living,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and I don't want to kind of, I don't know that I feel qualified necessarily to delineate what that would be, but you know the idea of say, you know we're not just physical thinking beings that we are not divorced mm-hmm. from an emotional self, we are not mental, uh, we're not brains in a vat to to sort of bring Cartesian thinking into it, um, that we're much more than that. Um, maybe history is going to write itself. I certainly hope so, but I also think that this period that we're in, which feels like a deeply women-hating period, mm. um, I know I feel it. I know that the people, especially the women in my life, certainly feel it, um, is a hard one. It's a re- It's been a really difficult transition to sort of see and understand and intuit what a lot of men uh, think about women and to come to terms with that and what that means about their own fears of the feminine consciousness within them um it's been eye-opening and quite depressing to be honest with you
0: yeah yeah so you know one related question i had was that um being like a kind of critical challenging artist um whose work like critiques a lot of this kind of like male dominated power structures but they're power structures anyway but they happen to be like pretty male dominated do you ever get like pushback like hey you're not supposed to you know you go over there and do your thing over there
1: Well, a lot of these industries that are male dominated are also inhabited by women too, right? I'm mm. thinking of all of the uns, I think this has been a a reformist part of the culture now is to talk about the women who help build tech and things mm-hmm. like that and how, what a disservice has been done to their contribution. I personally don't think about that too often, but you know, I, I can imagine and know that to be true. Mm. Um, so I just want to say that do I get pushback well I think one of the things that I'm very deliberate about is trying to challenge a west as the centered subjectivity of our time that Mm. that also I I was mostly raised in what is the west right if you go to Syria, are you no longer in the West? I mean, that idea alone is laughable, but
2: mm. but
1: I do think that there is a an Anglo-European lineage of thought that has been coterminous with colonialism, neo-colonialism, which is its own brand of scandal, and I know the country of my birth has definitely been affected by that. Our even our ideas of what it is to be human has been infected by that, mm-hmm. by neo-colonialist tendencies. Um, so I do feel very explicit in this that I want to decenter that um, one lineage that I'm excited by is an Afro diasporic one where. I think the question is being implicitly asked, why not center a black universal?
2: Mm.
1: And my response would be, yeah, why not? I don't have a problem with with that. What is the problem with that? Because when you do that, you realize that actually you were leaning on a different kind of universal that was not subjected to any kind of critique. Mm. Um, so while I don't have something to kind of fill that center or role Mm -hmm. i do want to be in a position if i can be especially as someone who's been alive for the analog versus the digital right or the entrance into that or let's say a masculinist ethos into a more possibly centered one or a highly commodifiable culture well i still think it's extremely consumerist and commodifiable but As someone who's been at the precipice of that, I think maybe I can use that vantage point to be explicit that we should always be questioning a central or dominant narrative, whether, you know, including some that are very uncomfortable in our personal lives. Um, I, I do remember growing up, my dad saying this to me, this was one of his parenting moments that I remember with a kind of halo around it (laughs) when we'd first immigrated to the United States he said you know you have the chance to choose what you want to adopt in other words if there's something about our culture if there's some kind of practice that you're not into you don't have to adopt it if there's something about American culture that quote American I mean I'm going to put scare quotes around that but the culture that we moved into You can borrow. Mm. And, you know, that seems really obvious now. But I think to a seven or eight year old, it was. I felt very responsible around that idea that, oh, by having this mentality as an immigrant, as a traveler, as someone who is an outsider to this culture, that. I can see it maybe more explicitly. My mm. eyes have not been so acculturated to it. You know, when you travel and just things, grocery stores, everything suddenly becomes unfamiliar to you. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that's so powerful. It's powerful because back home, things have become very monotonous, routine, and familiar to you. And I don't know that you necessarily need to travel. Kafka never left Prague, mm. from my understanding. He never traveled to America. He wrote a, a novel called America. Um but I do think that that has afforded me um, <laughs> in therapy. I am untangling all of the trauma it's created, but it's also afforded me a lot of benefit and a lot of um, triumphant um, feelings around being able to kind of see through that and see through these centralizing narratives that I don't believe belong there.
0: Um, My last question to you. There was a previous interview that I read where someone was talking about privacy and you kind of likened the privacy to like free will and like, oh, we know it doesn't exist, but kind of had sometimes have to pretend at least like we do. I'm going to segue off of that. I'm not going to talk about privacy, but I was like, oh, is that what you think about free will? think that we don't have free will. So what is the role of like religion or spirituality in your life?
1: I think the free will part that you're talking about was i was making an analogy to say you know like to go back to like the example of you have to have an ego you have to get out Mm -hmm. of bed and put your clothes on and brush your own teeth Mm -hmm. um and and back to the question of do how much control do i have in my life right um i'd like to think that i have free will But do I? I mean, how much of it is underwritten by my biology, my Mm -hmm. hormones, the epigenetics, the generational trauma, the events that I simply can't control? Like if I'm, you know, I don't know, in a car or on a bicycle, how much of the movements of other people are really under my control and so on and so on. So, you know, human behavior is quite mysterious, but uh, I still need to live my life as though I have it. Mm. Um, what is the role of religion in that is was that what you said
2: yeah yeah, yeah
1: well, I don't know yeah,
0: what is the role of religion and spirituality in your life
1: in mine, That's yeah. a growing area and a growing question. I think, um, mm. I read that bell hooks, the late bell hooks who we just lost, uh defined herself or or announced herself as a Buddhist Christian and i was really inspired by that i was like oh can i be a buddhist muslim then um i guess my 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 sense of that the label is sure all of the above i mean i was raised muslim but you cannot actually discuss islamic theology or an islamic society without mentioning what's come before it so much of islam is built on the foundations of Judaism, for example, I mean, I would say that unchallenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of the practices, let's say, um, and you know, in terms of the Abrahamic framework, but I think I've taken quite a ride with it. Uh, I, ironically or disjunctively, I think being raised within a very kind of with a lot of limitations right like a four, a, a, I remember being told like there's four frames and you're within it and being conditioned to think of myself as within some kind of frame made me really want to push the frame out and get rid of the frame um some time ago i want to say maybe 2016 or 17 i was exposed to buddhist principles and wasn't, you know, meditating yet, or maybe I was trying to, but thought of myself as kind of a failure in that endeavor, and went to study, went to study Buddhist lineage. Um, And funny enough, while I was there, what kept coming up over and over for me was the likeness of it to Islamic ideas, or even ideas that, um, ideas and practices and ways of being and being a constituted person in the world that I had learned in Candomble, which is an Afro-diasporic syncretic belief system often found in Brazil, in the West Indies, Cuba, and elsewhere. And I've been exposed to that and that um faith for in in you know in my twenties. And so when I was at this Buddhist retreat and hearing, you know, these, some of them, people who are like lay people uh, they're called householders and Mm -hmm. others, actual monks. Um, It was really astonishing how much it would bring up, you know, Shia theology in terms of justice and um, things that I had remembered reading and being exposed to. It brought up points in Candomblé about spiritual deities and all things or even this idea of consciousness as uh the uh, even the idea of the illusion of separation within buddhism and therefore oneness i couldn't stop thinking about how that was related to islam and the oneness or the unity of god and within that a submission aka taslim or a surrender to a design that is that is does not have you at the center of it. So I'm trying to kind of unravel and uncover these things and allow for them to coexist. I don't have a lot of people to talk about this with. I tend to have people in my life who are, you know, maybe agnostic or atheistic in some way or have some semblance of a Christian heritage in their upbringing. I've been to Catholic school. So I'm I feel pretty familiarized with Catholicism, given that I was you know, in one, in a Catholic school for three or four years. Uh, I went to Baptist schools as a child, so I was exposed to that. But I will say, um, I recently gave an NPR interview, like all things considered. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's out or if it's going to be out anytime soon, but it was about the SCOTUS decision. And the interviewer asked me to talk about you know, what it's like to receive this information about essentially Christian nationalism and its beliefs setting a tone about what women's bodily autonomy might look like. And my response to them was, you know, it makes you realize the dominant culture you're living in. In other words, Mm. it gives evidence to the unity of church and state. The Supreme Court is not elected in this country. It's appointed. Well, why does that sound so different or so much less hostile than the Supreme Council in Iran,
2: which Mm. is subject
1: to sanctions by the United States government? Why is that so different? Because if the majority of a nine-person, appointed, unelected class of people, many with ties, documented... Ties to Christian nationalisms In fact bear it as being In a cult that is mm. not my Opinion that is fact It's, mm. it's in the news currently um, What does that say For minoritarians who do not have, Share those beliefs In this country And not just people like me but You know there's lawsuits now Being launched by Jewish women who are saying This isn't my belief my belief is not about, you know, a fetus as a person, nor is it an Islamic belief. And by the way, nor is it a Christian one, but we don't have time to get into that. Mm. Um, these are novel ideas that are led by people who speak on behalf of mm. great faiths traditions. We can have our opinion on what the, what the whether the, those faiths are in fact great, but we're all under that umbrella. And I think... That, you know, to go back to your point about depression and apocalypse, I mean, it's profoundly alarming. Um, And by the way, Afghanistan was invaded with that pretext, right? We're going to go and save the women. Mm -hmm. We're going to go save these poor Muslim women who are in cages. And actually, I don't want to sort of diminish that idea, right? Women are imperiled all over the world. I mean, I think you were just in India we don't have time to get into the place of women in Indian society and, and you know, what's happening there. We can talk about sex trafficking in Iraq. We can talk about, you know, the epidemic of violence against girls and women in the United Kingdom. We can talk about France, who just sticks its... I, I just spent three months there, just sticks its head in the sand about, you know, the question of gender equity, even though it's sort of, like, seen as the enlightened... You know the enlightened European place. So, all that to say, I think religious borrowing has had a lot of impact in my life. I think I'm very attracted to belief systems that call us to decenter ourselves yeah. and um, continue to be. And I also see a lot of, um, I see a lot of contiguity and parallel within these traditions. And I also want to take up space and have autonomy to interpret them. Mm. One of the things that attracted me to Islamic thinking again is that there is no medium between you and God. There's not supposed to be a Mm. cleric, uh, a man, a woman, nothing. That there is Mm. a direct linkage. There's a direct link to God. It is not based on a clerical system, even though it's been carried out as though it is. And so you know i want to take up a lot of i want to take up as much critical thinking as much autonomous um debate as much consciousness raising and feeling as i can to be able to deepen a radical vision not just the artistic vision that we were talking about but a radical personal vision and what is the end goal i think the end goal is personal power and personal power doesn't mean misuse of resources or, you know, being like the president of Amazon or something. I think personal power is moving through the world with a kind of code, Mm. with an integrity and a personal code of what you're willing to do and what Mm -hmm. you're unwilling to do. And I'm always updating that code. Um, I want to live with it. Whether Mm -hmm. that makes me religious or non-religious, I don't know, but it's important for me to to be living in the in the path of personal power and being a part of writing that code of integrity for myself um, using multiple sources, a richness of sources.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, those were all my questions. And, yeah, I just think you're super cool, you know? And I feel like... Yeah. I feel like, yeah, your perspective is like really powerful and, um, yeah, I'm just really glad that we ended up talking in the back of that cab one time. And uh, Me too.
1: Me too. I think it was, you know, serendipity to take it back there because I was going to Uber from this conference to Tampa International Airport. <laughs> And a friend of mine was like, hey, you should look at the ride board and take a ride (laughs) share. And and I did. And, um, you know, I think uh, whatever I've said that resonates with you was likely kind of already there in you too.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And that said, it doesn't mean, you know, I do think a lot of your questions go back to sort of like the state of the world. And I think it's a really, maybe I share in your thinking that, it's pretty dark. It's a pretty dark time. You know, we're still in like a pandemic, (laughs) you know, like it's still there. We can talk about it as though it's not, we can live our lives as though it's not, but it is. And we're living in like the consequences of that. And, you know, the profound isolation of people and the kind of like people like marinating in these ideas that get untested and they're just sort of like, Mm -hmm isolated there it's so airless and any anytime we could oxygenate our own ideas yeah um, to me is very healthy so I I'm also grateful that I got a chance to kind of oxygenate yeah. some of my ideas here
0: yeah absolutely well you know I I don't know what how I presented myself but I'm actually like I'm pretty optimistic a lot of the times when I think about you know the state of the world the frame of mind that I have is as if that I am like some kind of a passive object that is just subject to everything that's happening. But uh, at different times, like I, I get off my ass and I'm like, hey, hang on a sec. Like I'm part of this living, breathing, animated universe and I can also do stuff and it ripples out and I can start where I am and I can do things and just start to affect positive change just around me. And then it kind of ripples out And there's like enormous power in that too. If you, and the more you believe in that, the more powerful it gets. And, um, yeah, and I've seen it like, this is why I was talking a little bit about the kind of power that I was feeling when I was listening to you. Like, I feel like a lot of the time when you're like really manifesting the kind of authentic power, it doesn't even take much. Like a person can see you for 30 seconds and be like, wow, there was something about that. Um, So, yeah, I feel like a lot of the time I try to stay in that, like, okay, I'm not just like a passive object that just receives what the darkening universe, like, it's also my job. Like, I'm not just here to watch. I'm here to uh, manifest a little bit of the kind of universe that I would like this to be. Um... And I think somewhere in there, there is like an infinite wellspring of optimism. Um, Like, I think there is no end. And I also believe that this is never, that apocalyptic things can happen. But in a sense, I feel like this life and, and, and the fact that things are happening, it's just infinite. It's just going to constantly, infinitely regenerate itself. And some of it is going to die and new things are going to come. And it's just going to keep churning new shit forever everything that's happening is happening for the first time and the last time <laughs> it's just gonna keep happening forever yeah so
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense to me and i you know human resilience <laughs> as a factor mm-hmm. here is is really a miracle um the way that we you know in some ways are to use your word passive object like we are subject to our evolutionary history, our biology, our hormones, all of these things beyond our control. And yet
2: Mm -hmm.
1: we have highly opposable thumbs (laughs) and a a telencephalon. We have these things that distinguish us in some ways as being able and capable of maybe having a, a hand in our destiny. And I can't help but feel like that's a motivating factor we talked about cats earlier. I think taking care of a cat, my Zen Master is what I call my cat, um taking care of an animal too has been a profoundly humbling experience and one mm-hmm. filled with optimism even if, you know, even if something's wrong or mm-hmm. the vet gives you news you don't like, but the that kind of care has mm-hmm. also given me I don't know, this sounds strange to say, but it it fills me with a sense of purpose and, yeah. and um, delight even. Delight, yeah. like what's she going to do next, you know? Yeah. I yeah. think we need, we need predictability and we need unpredictability, you know?
0: Yeah, it shakes you out of indifference. Like whichever way it is, you're like now connected. You're like, shit matters now, you <laughs> know? <laughs> Thanks for joining Mona Lisa and me today in the Room of Lives. Take care. Until next time. Music